You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Hi, I'm Margie Taylor, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Margie Taylor. She's the author of Rose Adams. Margie, how are you? I'm very well, Tony. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. I, ju- I just got back online dating again, like last night, and I realized I should just get off immediately. You got online dating? I just, I, I joined online dating again. Yeah. Which, which one did you join? Can I ask? Yeah. Okay. Cupid. And I'm ready to get off immediately because <laughs> everyone's just like, oh, I like the beach and hiking. And, uh, and it's just, I'm like, you all do. Is there anything else? I um I did I did once. I, I yeah. I'll tell you something about that. My stepson, who's been single for many, many years, even though he's got he's got a girlfriend now and that, but he says the thing about online dating, the more you pay for the platform, the better quality of matches you get. Ah. Oh. So I joined one a few years ago after my husband died. I joined yeah. one years later and i was on it for six months and it was like a, a almost a freebie i think it was like 14 bucks or something for six months it was uh-huh. real cheap and you know i kept seeing these these faces and that's all i did have one date and at the end of the date just to show you we went to a movie a matinee at four o'clock uh-huh i liked them already because that's yeah. exactly the time i want to go see a film okay four o'clock, four o'clock <laughs> you know seemed appropriate and then I had agreed to go for dinner. So we went for dinner and to show you the quality of the date at eight o'clock, I was looking at my watch. Oh my gosh. Is that the time? Oh, geez. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to have to go eight o'clock, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, it didn't go terribly well. And I, Oh, I see. Cause sometimes if you're both on the same page about getting home early, no. That's like the sexiest thing in the world because we're I want to be wrapped in a blanket by nine no, o'clock and reading. We're not. <laughs> we're not on the same page. We were not. <laughs> and uh, there was some follow-up text from him about how obviously I'm still mourning my husband. That I finally just had to say, you know, that's is that seems a little intrusive to say something like that. Yeah, it was, that, it was. You know what it was, Tony? I'll tell you one thing. It was condescending. And yeah. I hadn't dated in 40 years and I had forgotten that sometimes men do a lot of mansplaining. Yeah. My husband, Sarah's dad, Sarah says, hi, by the way. My hi, daughter. Sarah. Hi. Uh, she's not here at the moment, but she wanted me to say. No, hi. I was just yelling it as loud as possible. So she'll <laughs> get the podcast. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, But he was not a mansplainer and I'd forgotten about that. I'd forgotten about how a lot of men, like he started telling me about nutrition and stuff and, I forgot about all that stuff. Oh, yeah. And I'm just too, I'm way past it, Tony. I just can't, I, I don't think I was ever very good at submitting to that anyway, but. Interesting. Not so, just, oh, so I get what you're saying. This guy was a monologue. He wasn't a listener. He wasn't well, an engaging conversationalist. Oh, no, that's right. And, and you know, somebody once said to me, because I was on the air for years, right, as an interviewer. Yeah. So, you know, and somebody once said, there are people who listen and people who wait to speak. Right? Yeah. And and you even hear that on the radio. You'll hear an interviewer and you just know 
they're not really listening. They're waiting. They're waiting to ask the next question. They've got a yeah. list of questions, and that's kind of what this date was like. He had various things he wanted to say. Yeah. Um, he was waiting to say them, and you know, he's probably a nice enough person. But anyway, that was my one, my one. Uh, and know, then after that, you got off it. And- I got off it. I just thought. I don't know. I just, it's not going to happen. So why did you decide to, can I ask, why did you decide to get back onto the online? Well, you know, I was like, I was like married for a long time and I'm really a relationship type guy, you know, but at the same time, I'm also in therapy. I've learned to, in order, you know, it's like, here's the thing. What is the common denominator when you have a series of bad relationships? It's me. Oh. <laughs> I'm the common oh, denominator. Okay. <laughs> so how do I work on myself mm. and understand? So I feel like I've done a lot of work on myself and understanding. And I'm hoping that I'm to a level of to, I'm a le- I'm a level of stupidity of the human condition that's higher than where I used to be. So okay. then I could find someone else at the same level of stupidity of the human condition. And then me and her can grow together. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good way to look at it, actually. Now, the difference between you and me, well, there's probably lots of differences, but one of them being you have more time to develop this. Yeah. My problem is I'm on the other end. I have a friend who keeps saying we're in the death zone, which <laughs> that is that is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's not really the way I prefer to look at my life, but yeah, that's how he sees it. So, and another friend says, remember, Margie, it takes a good five years to really establish a relationship. Well, five years, the men that I'm meeting, I'm sorry, but they're going to be gone by then. Oh. Well, I don't have the time, Tony. I don't have the time. At the same time, if they're gone by then, by then, that might be a good situation because you have a good memory because you won't find out the bad things about them. So then it'll be like a, it'll be like, oh, you know, he was the he was the one that just got away. He was so yeah. great, and you, but you didn't know the dark side yet. I didn't know. I didn't have time to find out the dark side. There's a beauty to that. There is something good about that. I, I'm going to keep that in mind. Maybe I'll get into it again. I don't know. My my kids are always saying I should, but yeah. um, you know. It's different for them. I mean, they're they're younger and less jaded and angry with the world. <laughs> what? Yeah. How, what is that? Because I feel I do feel jaded, and and even I was, you know, I was just at Trader Joe's, and I was like, um, I, it, it, there were people there were just there was this uh, there was this vibe of I've got to get to I got to put my cart over here and get to that thing, you know. <laughs> I'm just like. I'm walking through it kind of whistling, going, I'm not joining this vibe. I'm not joining this vibe. But I am very irritated on the inside generally. But at the same time, it's just like, but you know what? How lucky am I to be at a Trader Joe's at two o'clock in the afternoon because of what I do? I get to just go, oh, I'll go now. Oh, the parking's packed. It doesn't matter because I don't have that much to do until a certain time. I'm not... Everyone is in such a rush, but I don't even know if they're in a real rush. It's like they're a manufactured rush. I better look like I'm doing something. Well, if you're not busy, then you're not you're not real. You're not a real person. Do you know what I think is really interesting? I, I thought about this off and on over the years, but a hundred years ago, 
a sign of a successful, we'll say a man, okay? Mm -hmm. A sign of a successful man would be that he had incredible leisure time. He had- 100, 100 years ago? Yeah. I was yeah. born at the wrong time. Okay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wealthy men, men who had done well in life, they could go and sit in their club and smoke their cigar. They had time to, I don't know, do whatever leisure men did. They had time. Yeah. The sign now of a successful man is he's like, uh, you know, he works 80 hour weeks and he's just never away from the office and he's just go, 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 go. And he's what busy. a bore. I don't get I that at all. I know it's awful. I do get it if you love it. Like for yeah. me, for me, it's about writing. For me, it's yeah. about talking to writers. For me, it's about teaching. I love mm -hmm. it. So it's just, it's not even like work. It's just what I do. Yeah. And I'll do it no matter what. It's like, you know, I'm planning a trip to Portugal and I'm like, I can't wait because I'm going to stay in one small city for 10 days. And guess what I'm going to do? Exactly what I do in Los Angeles, right mm -hmm. at the cafe in the morning. Learn, learn. I'll, I'll get my cafe, my bar, my restaurant, the three places. So by day seven, they'll be like, Tommy, hey. And I'll be like, ah, tuto bang, you know. And, <laughs> what, and, part of, what part of Portugal are you going to? Uh, my friends just moved to uh, Coimbra and I have another friend that's near Porto. So I'm visiting okay. both of them. I'm trying to put something that's kind of central and just, you know, just uh, visit my friends, but also kind of just be on my own. I don't, I'm, uh, you know, it's just like, but it, it, um, and I feel like that's where, I don't know how I got on that, but that's, I feel like that's where the experience is. It's, it's planting yourself in the city and just getting to know a very small part of it. I'll that's do some touristy it. stuff, but I want to be the guy that they keep looking at going, did you just move here? And yeah, I'll be like, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. It's, it's like um, my favorite memories of any traveling I've done in Europe or wherever else is it's been, you know, like we went to Portugal years ago and stayed in Albufera, which is in the Algarve. And just that time, you know, we weren't there long. We were there about a week, but we just stayed put. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you know, my daughter's heading off uh, at the end of the month. She's going to spend four weeks in um, Malaga, Granada, Granada. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just, you know, <clears throat> edging out. That's awesome. Yeah. She's been there before. She's been in that area before um, uh, when she was working on a film, like, I don't know, four huh. years, five years ago. So she's going back. She says she will spend less money in that part of Spain than if she stays here. Um, for one thing, she says the, the wine is three euros a glass. I think she's yeah. basing a whole trip on what wine costs. But Oh, my God. It, that blows my mind. Like, <laughs> my friend is in Madrid right now, and he's just like, yeah. wine costs like five euros a glass. It's the highest end wine. And we're just sitting there going, are you sure this is our bill? You know? Yeah, I know. I know exactly. That's the one thing. That Well, that's one of the many things. I don't know where you are, but here in, in, in BC, in Canada, um, eating out has just skyrocketed. Yeah. Now, I know that restaurants had, and, and of course, during, you know, when we came out of COVID, everybody started going out because we wanted to support these restaurants that had really struggled, right, right. During, during COVID, and I get it, but I can't believe, now what I paid. I used to be able to go for a, a lunch, you know, I have a small, I'm not a big eater, so I'd have a small, you know, appetizer, whatever, and a glass of wine, yeah. and with a little tip, I would, I'd walk out having paid 30 bucks. I never get out for less than 50 now. 
Wow. Never get out for less than 50. See, I'm in Los Angeles and the, the key to Los Angeles is the happy hours. Oh, so, happy yeah. hours. Oh my God. Yeah. And there's a great one right up the street from me, this little French bistro. And it's just, it's like uh, $7 for a glass of wine and you get like a, you can get an appetizer, di- a good appetizer dish for about 12 bucks. Yeah. And you get out for about 25 bucks. That's great. That's or I end up having two glasses and, you yeah. know, it costs a little more Then I, 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 you know, I drink a lot less these days, but once in a while, you know. Now, well, exactly. And the thing is that I used to be able to do that on my limited budget, um, which is, you know, I mean, I, well, we could go on a long rant about writers and. Let's do it because because I think that's important that I've learned it's it, about the budgeting and also about how to spend my time. I'm lucky I don't work during the day, but at the same time, I'm not getting a steady paycheck. So I can go, go do happy hours during the day while everyone's trying to rush out of work to get there for that one drink. Yeah. And I've been there for two hours already <laughs> reading my book and doing some journaling, you know, so. Yeah. It, it's a, you know what? The upsides. Okay. So the upsides are that we are doing what we love. Yeah. Like, you know, which I, I feel very privileged to be able to do what I love to do. Isn't it great? It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I kept, when I was working at, at CBC, I, you know, over the 30 year period I was there, I kept quitting every now and then so I could write just because yeah. I wanted to write. Um, but so now, yeah, I can write and it's great. But I mean, a friend of mine just posted something on Facebook. Um, okay, I'll get it right. Teach a man to fish. No. Give a man a fish, he's got, he will eat for one day. Teach a man to fish, and he will eat for a lifetime. Teach, <laughs> teach a man to write, and he will be poor for a lifetime. It was something about, <laughs> anyway, I'm not saying it right. No, but, no, but I, got, I, I got the gist of got it. got the idea, right? Right. And it's, it, that's why I tell my students, um, get out while you can. Is this <laughs> not a passion? You know, is, are you just doing this to look good? Is this not in your heart? If it's not in your heart, there's so don't many do better decisions to don't make. Do it. Don't do it. Like Mordecai Richler said, if you don't love it, go sell shoes. You know? You might love selling shoes. Yeah, you might be the guy that's the shoe seller of the world. And you never you never knew you had that. that passion. You can absolutely do that. But yeah. I used to feel that too. I mean, it was a very similar thing for years when I was in between uh, gigs. I would give uh, workshops for on creative writing workshops. Like for... Mm-hmm. for for the uh, media, like for for writing and stuff for CBC. And I used to say at the beginning of the class, you know, the successful freelancer has a full-time job that pays decently for which he never needs to go into work. Yeah. So that, (laughs) having that income all the time, you can then afford to freelance. Yeah. You can have the leisure time because I, I can say I consider myself wealthy, even though I'm not in an estate, I'm in a rent controlled studio apartment in a cool part of Los Angeles. And, um, but I, I consider myself wealthy because my time is chosen by exactly, you know, it's not that I don't bang my head against the wall. It's not all paradise. It's, you know, it's, it's taken a beating. You're, you know, the idea of choice this is yeah. where I had this big discussion. I got to tell you, I had this big discussion last year with a, a girlfriend of mine over the issue of privilege yeah. because it had only, exactly about three or four years ago, but it had only started to dawn on me that I 
am a person of privilege. Now, I never ever considered myself that as I was growing up. My mom died when I was young. We didn't have much money. I had to take care of my three sisters, blah, 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 all that, right? You know, but I began to realize that because I'm from Northern Ontario and I was a, a fairly well-educated white woman, I walked into jobs that nobody questioned. Of course, we want you to work here. We want you to be an announcer. We want this. I was not, you know, uh, profiled by the police. I was, you know, I have had a life of privilege. Now, it doesn't mean that I walk around, you know, with this huge grin on my face all the time. But I feel that this is a big thing, especially with for people of my generation, is we have to accept the privilege that we've had and even the privilege that we have over our children. My kids will probably never own a house. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, my my son and I together just bought a car for what I paid for my first house. We bought a Tesla. He's paying for it. I'm not paying for it. But it's what I paid when my husband and I were first together for our first house. Wow. I mean, it's nuts. It is. And then, and and speaking of that, with this whole generation of people who I, I, on YouTube, I go down these, you know, the rabbit hole sometimes. And yeah. And it's these, these uh, people in their like, you know, twenties and thirties who are influencers who are like, I live out of my car and I get to travel and go wherever I want. And I'm like, you're homeless. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. You're, exactly. you're making you're making homelessness a cool thing, but and and I'm like, I really want to see your everyday life because that's got to be so irritating. I you I need yeah, it, it, this uh, even the van conversions. It's just like I don't get you no no. I know you're not happy. <laughs> Actually, they're probably really happy, and I'm in the wrong side. Oh, no, you know what, Tony? I think your instincts are right. I, we have, you know, in, in Vancouver, we have, as every city does, but we have just never come to terms with the homeless issue here. And we are doing a terrible, terrible job of fixing yeah. Basically, the, the, the idea seems to be every few months we get the poor, poor, I say poor policemen to come out and sweep the sidewalks clean of these tents and, and all these things that are set up and move them along. Close yeah. the tents, move them along to somewhere else, and pretty soon they build. It, there's no solution. There's no solution, right? And I mean, yeah. the thing that always occurs to me is number one, imagine not having your own place to go to the bathroom. That's the main thing. And yeah. why do humans need to go to the bathroom? If we didn't need to go to the bathroom, could probably do it. Could, I could probably <laughs> why would anyone live anywhere? <laughs> I could probably live in a park if I didn't have to go to the bathroom. I shouldn't, you know what? That's a terrible thing. And you know, I don't, you know, I don't mean it at all. But when you think about it, Virginia Woolf said, a woman needs money and a room of her own to write fiction, okay? And I don't know about the money. I think you need a certain amount, I guess, to keep a roof over your head, but right. you need your space. Where would you write? I mean, it's fine to go and write in cafes and, and people do, but they write in cafes kind of to get out and mingle and then they yeah. go back to their home. Right. They now, when, uh, do you, now at the cafes I go to, it's all laptop warriors. Yes. 
Is that up there as well? Laptop warriors. It's like laptop warriors. They go in there with their computers. Yes. And they and they look very studious. And everything's really. I'm in Los Angeles. Everything's really important because it's all you know. It's all screenplays. It's all screenwriters. I go in there with my novel and I'm like, "You guys are scum." You know, I (laughs) slam my paper novel down and it's redline it. I don't bring a laptop. You're so angry. I love it. Oh, it just. So I I've been averse to it for decades. I remember in San Francisco when um one cafe I used to go right at, they put in Wi-Fi and they put in two internet computer stations. This was like in 1999. And I was like, why are you ruining everything? And they're like, no, dude, we got to do this. And I'm like, no, take it all out. Don't do it. Cause it's so great. Cause we can all just sit and talk and do our writing. And then, now that's that's not even a that wouldn't even be an irritating thought to people, but I'm still irritated by it. Can you imagine if that's the way it had worked in Paris in the 1930s? So you've got Hemingway and Fitzgerald, and, and they're all sitting in these cafes in Paris with yeah. their with their with their uh, espressos, working on their laptops, not yeah. talking, right. not arguing about the war, you know, coming war. Exactly. They're just on their, or they're on their phones, right? I mean, right. can you imagine? I mean. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have a whole literary canon from all those eras. And, and, and how do we get that? I have been trying to find this. Maybe, maybe we can figure this out right now, Margie. How can we get to a point where there is a place and it's, you know, people do it at bars and it drives me nuts at bars because that's kind of drunk talking. You know, it's like, how can we do it when there's a cup of coffee? Back then they had cigarettes too. So they were like, oh, oh do you need to smoke? I need to smoke. And that yeah. was kind of meditative. You know, it's yeah. just like, and sometimes I've, a couple of times I've tried to go like to like a hookah lounge and it's just all 18 year olds like sipping there, you know, and I'm like, okay, this isn't working. I'm trying, I'm trying to find that vibe. I'm trying to find those people who want to sit there and talk and not be so intent on looking busy. Do you think maybe that might be part of what you will find when you go to Portugal? I mean, I don't um, that's I a lot more optimistic than I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> well, think I'm, just, I'm just thinking, I mean, I know everybody has phones now, Yeah. Um, but you're right. My memory, oh God, it's been so long since I was either in Portugal or even in Greece, which was even before then. But I do remember, I remember the men, the old men, maybe that's what it was, it was the old men sitting outside, right? Around yeah. the tables, watching the world go by, talking, commenting on, you know, things. I mean, I would bet that that still happens, but it's with the very old I bet their their kids are not the slightest bit interested in any of that. So I got to find my old people. You got to find your old people. You're yeah. gonna, you need to look for old people that want to just sit and converse and talk. And yeah, I think that's I think that's going to be it because uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I have great conversations with with my kids, um, but I don't know how great their conversations are. I shouldn't say that. That's kind of making an assumption. I I don't know. They go out and do they have those kind of conversations with their friends or are they all looking on phones? Actually, okay, I'm going to back up. You know what? My kids are of an age where they're 
like they're in their, they're 40, 40, 40 and 42, right? So they're not quite as hooked as the ones, say, in the 20s. Yeah. Right? You still believe in talking to people. Yeah. It, there's still that. Yeah. But I'm not sure I've got a grandson, a lovely young young guy who's nine, and a couple that are like 11 and 13 and 17. And I bet you it's all about communicating on the phone, on the screen. I don't know. Like, I it's hard to for me to imagine these young people then, at some point, leaving their phones and going out into the world, and exploring, and finding people who don't necessarily think what exactly like them or something. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what happens. I had a shower thought the other day, which is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is, I was thinking, you know, I think even like text, when we text each other, I think there's some self-censorship there because we're worried if we offend, that text is there. And what's the beauty about having a conversation, I was realizing this too, because I'm about, I am about to turn in a novel to um, my agent. She may say, I can't ref this, which is fine. But I know, or she may say, this is great blah okay. blah blah um you know you know as a writer when you're about to turn it in you're just oh, like oh, yeah. i know it's terrifying yeah but i'm gonna be in new york because i'm gonna make sure that i'm having the conversation with her so she can feel absolutely free to tell me everything and know that i'm not gonna you know go oh well you know see look at the email she sent me about why it was wrong blah 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 it's it, and i think that's what everyone's scared of is that getting out there uh and it's something where i can go oh they weren't cool enough to you know oh high high end agency wasn't cool enough to deal with this subject yeah. and people are actively ruining reputations that way where i can just go and look at her eye to eye and go hey me and you you know if she goes yes this is great can we change this this and this and then i can explain to her you know the 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 in person the in-person conversations I think are still so necessary, maybe even more necessary and may get us. And maybe there's a, maybe there's a good thing that people are getting more and more dumb and only texting and doing that because those of us who go, I'm on a plane and I'm coming to meet you. Yeah. But it's a different thing because we're sitting there having the real conversation. Seriously. But you know, And yeah, I mean, I think that's a great thing to do. I'm envious because I've had several novels published. I've never been able to get an agent. Now, that's partly because in this country, there are at any one time, there are 30 agents accepting manuscripts. And of them, half of them only want children's literature. Another proportion only want YA or fantasy or genre of some kind. And then the ones that are accepting unsolicited manuscripts are there's maybe four at a time that are that are looking for for manuscripts. So that's part of the problem. But having said that, the interesting thing to me about what you were saying too is that in the internet, or not so much the internet, but internet communication has made us very, very those of us who care what people think of us, of saying the wrong thing. We can be so easily misinterpreted. Yeah. And there are so many people ready to 
jump on us if we say something that is meant maybe meant as a joke or is right. slightly off the wall in some level. I mean, I'm really bad for um, in on a person to person stuff saying just off the wall things. I, I'm going to give you an example. I just want to give you one example because I'd like to know what you think about this. Okay. Okay. The book Rose Adams. I had this image in my head of how I wanted to start it. And I used that in the beginning. And the beginning of the book was supposed to be uh, Rose Adams is backing out of a parking lot. And as she's backing out, she has a random thought. And the random thought is that um, having children means you can no longer commit suicide. It takes away your right to kill yourself. <laughs> now, this is this came out of the fact that it was kind of a dark standing joke between my husband and I. Uh -huh. I said to him after my daughter was born, I said, well, that's it. I guess it's all right. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God. Uh, rats, you know, <laughs> if I ever wanted to just end it all, now I can't because I couldn't do that to my kid, right? I couldn't right. do that to Sarah. So my husband would remind me of it now and then. It was our sort of standing joke. And I used that at the beginning. And my editor came back to me and she's a lovely person. I think she did a great job. I mean, she read this damn book seven times from beginning to end, which I think was way above and beyond the call of duty. Yeah, yeah. But she kept saying, it's triggering. I don't know that you should use that. And eventually, I I dropped it. Okay. I, I went with the image of the, uh, this uh, homeless young man she sees by the store instead. And I used that as the as the opening rather than the, the thing. But I wanted it in there because the whole thing about Rose Adams is she's very random. Yeah. She's just always, her brain's always, and I guess who that's like, right? You know? Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. But that joke was a very personal joke, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and the other thing, she where she finally changed my mind, she reminded me, of the Anton Chekhov quote about if at the beginning of the play, there's a pistol on the wall. At some point, the gun needs to be fired. And if it's not, get rid of it. And in my book, there was no, there's no suicide. Oh, that's, that's interesting. They, what do they call it? Chekhov's gun, right? Chekhov's gun, yeah. Yeah. Where if you if you so, say something like that's shocking right at the beginning or have that kind of image, it better have a reason to be there. At the same time, I think the the joke, the intent of the joke doesn't it, it it's not going as deep as a Chekhov's gun. It's it's there's I mean I you know I've I've had suicide in my family. I've I've been around like a lot of suicides, oh, and yeah. so. It's like like that doesn't trigger me at all because I've had suicide in my yeah, family. I've yeah. been, I've checked myself into a hospital for contemplating suicide before, and so I've been through it. And I think it's funny because okay. it's because well, it's the true. it's the truth. It's there's yeah. so much truth to it. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I, that, I I appreciate that because that kind of validates. It's the one thing I finally I held on to it for the first like four run through yeah how do you feel about the how do you feel about the changed one though do you feel okay. it serves the story i'm, I'm okay i think yeah. it serves the story I, i'm i'm okay with it 
It yeah. took a while though to lose it because it was that image and that saying that triggered the whole writing of the book. Yeah. I mean, I got that woman in the car thinking that, and I thought, I know this woman. I can write her. That would and be a thought I would have. <laughs> that, 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 I, that would be a thought I would have, which just yeah. cracks me up. That's there's a. Yeah. 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 It's it, that's it why I get it because. Yeah. I, also, I feel like people who say who deny ever ha- having thought of suicide, I think they're all liars. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think everyone at some point gets a dark place in their life and going, you know what the easy way out is? And then we figure out how not to do the easy way yeah. out. Yeah, I know. Exactly. And I do. You know, I've, I've had I've had a couple of friends who have, who have committed suicide. And we do have some, we have it in our family, not my, my own family, but in, in terms of my, my daughter-in-law's family. And I, I know that it's not, how can I say it's, I want to say it's not a joking matter, but you know, what occurs to me too, is that my son was telling me a while back that um, a lot of comedians, stand-up comics will no longer perform on university campuses. Yep. Is, is that what you, is that your your understanding? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's, you can't say anything because they'll they'll yell at you, they'll boo you off the stage. And that, and I think that I think it's so imp- like something like like what like the scenario and joke you just did, yeah, was funny. And we have to we're either gonna laugh or we're gonna cry. Yeah. So those, those are the two emotions because life is tragedy. Yeah. So why not? Just look at the absurd, and because we all have these thoughts too, and it's just and it drives me crazy that you know it's like when people go, oh, this could be triggering. You know, I do, I do, and I do enjoy it if I'm watching a um, if I if I would watch something on Netflix and it says, and I do like when it sometimes says like caution, there's there's suicide yeah. here, yeah. and if I'm having like if I'm having a grieving day or something, I'm like, yeah, okay. I can't, I just can't watch that story right yeah. now. And that, but that's a drama. But if I'm watching a comedian and they come up with a joke, um, it doesn't, it doesn't bring me to a dark place. It brings me to a place of levity because it's like, Oh man, we're all in this, we're all in this world Everybody together. We're all in this crazy yeah. world. Yeah. It, yeah. it makes me feel. We're on this. We're on this little rock spinning around. Nobody knows why we're here or what's going to happen later or anything. You got to laugh, right? Yeah. And and it, and it makes me feel connected. It makes, it makes me, I think that's, and that's what we need to be as humans is connecting and connecting on just, you know, the awful crap. We, the, we go through so much crap in life and, and us as writers, it's, it's kind of our duty to go to those places and go, how can I extrapolate a joke out of this? How, how can I, um, you know, and sometimes you can't, I mean, I've tried and I failed and I go, okay. And, but then sometimes you can and like, and I really love that the original opening because well, I, I, you know, if I had spoken, if I, we had this conversation two years ago, I probably would have held on to it because everybody else my kids, well, my kids were on the fence about it. Um, Sarah mainly just didn't want me to blow it with with the publisher. She, she, I think she felt if they feel strongly about it, and you know, she did some internship with with Random House, and she knows how the publishers think. And she said, you know, maybe you should trust their instincts if they feel strongly about it, right? 
Um, my son is his 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 beautiful, lovely young wife. Her father committed suicide. But even so, even though Jesse is very cautious about talking about suicide around her, he didn't feel it was particularly triggering. He didn't feel right. that June would read it and then just like go off the wall or something. So it's one of those decisions. You know, it's funny thing that when we're talking about stuff like that, uh, like not as much as you, obviously, but I do I do some editing of and reading of other people's manuscripts. And I although I'm at the point where I I won't do it as a favor for a friend because they never like what you're gonna say and they and they want you just to say this is the best thing since Hemingway and you're probably not going to say that. Really? That oh, that's oh, that's oh I've just had a, I just sent a few friends my last draft, and I got notes uh, back, and they beat me up, and they beat me up so perfectly because some of I I agree with some of them, I disagree with others, and I needed I needed my writer. You'll take yeah. the worst yeah. thing is I get scripts like the last. I remember when I was getting my master's a few years ago. My my advisor it was my advisor. He asked me to read a novel he'd written, and. I read it and I said, you know, Al, um, aside from the fact that you refuse to understand the difference between lie and lay, he still does that all the time on Facebook. Yes. <laughs> drives me crazy, drives me crazy. Um, he'll say, I am laying here in the sun. No, you're not, you're lying. But anyway, um, but I finally said, you know, the problem I have, Al, is it's not badly written, but nothing happens. There's no plot. It's yeah. basically a series of, you know, this day happened and then this day and then this day. Yeah. And his, his re response was, which I've had before from friends, well, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to change anything. It's, I like the way it is. And I and I always say, you know what? That's fine. Yeah. That's absolutely great. Yeah. I, I'm only giving you feedback if you ever decided you wanted to submit it to a publisher. Yeah. If you just if you want to have a, a book that you've written and you're happy with it, good on you. Don't don't worry about it. But it, I, it created some tension. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I want my I, I want like even my students that are you know I teach screenwriting. Right. I want their films to be produced. I that would be amazing because then yeah. I can be I can be like oh my god I was a part of that path. That's it's right. it, it would give me so much joy. My friends who send me their manuscripts, I want them to get published and be on the bestseller list. And I'm going to, so I see it and I'm going to do it. Like I see it as I need to do my part to, right. to help them. It's, right. and, and they're doing the same thing to me. I know they're just like, Oh, this, this is good, but, and I'm but, like, yes, bring it. And it's. But you see the difference with you, your professional writer, you don't burst into tears every time somebody says, Oh I no, I burst into tears. Well, even if you do. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, and, and I know personally that I will never forgive that other person for not loving every word that I wrote, but you know, I, I had my first novel. Yeah. No, my second novel, a friend of mine <laughs> sent me back an email with all the spelling, all the typos that were in uh, <laughs> Yeah. Okay, thank you so much for that, you know? Yeah. Um, but never mind. But the thing is, though, I will say, I'm assuming that you take it for what it is. This is feedback. This is, we all need feedback. I mean, yeah. in 30 years of radio, I knew that as an announcer, I needed a producer. And a writer needs an editor, right? Yeah. We all need feedback. It doesn't mean we have to cave and, 
and crumple over everything that somebody else thinks we should do. We've right. got to have our own voice, right? Right. But, but we need to accept that, you know, somebody else might have something to say about what we've written and maybe there's something in it. Yes. Um, you know? And even yeah. circling back to the beginning of your book, yeah, yeah. Um, I do understand, you know, if that was like a plot line that they asked you to take out or kind of a subplot that was oh, threaded yeah. out, that would be a very different story. But one joke isn't going to break um, the, the voice of a novel. It's, yeah. you know, and it, so maybe Sarah's um, advice was good advice. And also sometimes publishers will be like, oh, if, they, if she keeps that in there, we're not going to push it as hard for publicity. You know, they they want to pull back a little bit. So, so it's a, want, yeah, you, once they've accepted, well, you know, once they've accepted it, um, you really want it to work. I did the huh. same thing with, with the cover. They um they submitted four, uh, four cover designs, right? Mm -hmm. And the one I loved was a picture of a woman's very well manicured hand holding a glass of red wine. I loved that. It's yeah. seemed Elegant. It seemed great. Um, they the, the the they got back to me that yes, it was a lovely cover, but it didn't really speak to the book. It didn't really speak to the character. Um, that you know there wasn't really. I mean, Rose does have a glass of wine now and then, um, and I certainly have a glass of wine more than now and then. But which is maybe why I like the cover. But I just thought, you know what? I just want, I I don't design covers. What do I know about designing covers? Yeah. I'm an artist, right? But if they think that another one, and to, to so far to this date, one thing everybody has said is, oh, I love the cover. I love the cover. So you know what? Sometimes you just got to know when to let somebody else um, make the decision. Yeah. It's, it, it's, a, it's like, okay, we're the writer. Let someone else do yeah. visual stuff. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, which is why I don't do well um, self in self-publishing. I am really not a marketer. And I know that you, I know you have to be to some extent, even when you're published by somebody yeah. else, you have to promote your stuff. You have to, you know, talk it up and do the things. And I'm happy to do all those, but there are people who are really good at self-publishing because they just they just get out there and do it and push it. Yeah, it's well, and I, it's it's interesting because I can't fathom that either because I can't fathom. It's like I I I you know maybe it's an ego thing, but I need someone else championing my work, and then I I'll do just as much publicity and just oh. as much work, but at the same time, I'm not going out there going. Oh, please buy my book on Kindle for two ninety nine, and I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I can never be that guy. I can never be it's that guy. Like, it's like when they—I don't know if they still do it um, where you are—but they used to uh, send us out to sit in a bookstore, right, with your books, and and yeah. the table is always by the entrance. So people come in, and you can tell they've seen you as they're walking in, and they're they're really trying not to make eye contact, right? <laughs> yeah. <And> you feel like. <laughs> you feel like I'm not asking for a handout. I mean, you know, I, I, I would just like some, I, you feel, I mean, I hate it. I, yeah. I, I, hate it. I hate it almost as much as um, with, with years ago when, when uh, publishers used to send you on here, they did anyway, they'd send you across the country to do 
to do um, talks and things, readings and things. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't happen as much here anymore. I'm not sure. In the States, it's probably different. But yeah. here, it only happens if you're a very, very big deal. Oh, but really? I, yeah. But I remember them sending me up to Edmonton to Grant McEwen College. And because um, there was some literary festival going on. And I was there to read for my first novel. And um, I walked in. And I looked around the room and there were three people and they were all members of the college that had helped organize this. So we waited and no, nobody's here. Okay, that's fine. It's not working. I'm just about to leave when one woman of the public comes in, plants herself in the first row and waits. So I have to, I had to do my, my, my reading to one, I'm like, oh, it was so awful. I mean, and then of course, in the end, she didn't buy a book. Yeah, <laughs> that I love that. It's, oh, yeah, so I, I don't. <laughs> I always we I teach a library workshop once a month at our local library, um, and our library and the librarian's so nice. He's like, "Oh, I don't know if we have uh, people coming tonight." And I'm like, "Dude, I could do one person. I could do a hundred. I don't care. If it's one person, I'll sit there and talk to them about you know their personal writing. If it's you know forty people." I could do that too. I, I have no problem either way. And I've I've had times where there's only three people. So I just pull my seat right up to them and go, great. What, where are you at in writing? What do you want to do? Oh, let's bang some ideas off of that. And I just make it like a little writer's that's, room. You know what, Tony? That's, I wish somebody had said that to me 30 years ago. That's really good advice because yeah. as a novice at this, I, it didn't dawn on me to just turn it into an interaction. I mean, yeah. I, I didn't know I could do that, right? Yeah. I just thought, oh, I guess I have to do what I would do if there was a full room or something. And <laughs> I, I love that. I love, I love, I love the visual of that. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> it was awful. It was so embarrassed. But you know what? That is helpful. Thank you. This is why my daughter likes working with you because you have good ideas. Um, and and yeah, this is. That's really helpful to me. Well, I would have walked out of that um, and I would have known more about her. I would have asked, I would have asked that person, the person in the audience about them. And they probably wouldn't even have known I was the author in the end. <laughs> it would yeah, have just yeah. been like, that's well, that was a nice fella. And then they leave. <laughs> <Yeah>, just <laughs> yeah. No, I think, I think that's fantastic. That's a, that's a really good thing to keep in mind. I'll use that. Cause I'm sure yeah. I'll again. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's um there's an author named Larry Doyle. He wrote a book called I Love You, Beth Cooper, which became oh. a movie. And he used to be a writer on The Simpsons. And he's like, and he writes for The New Yorker. He's been in The New Yorker a bunch of times. So I used to write for the San Francisco Chronicle. And I did a um, profile on him, a full page profile in the entertainment section. Right. And we we did yeah, we did it in coordination of his reading at one of the bookstores in uh, San Francisco. And so did the interview and everything the the it, the full page ran and then he had his reading but i didn't go to that he came through san francisco again about three years later and we were talking about audiences and he goes do you know he was telling me do you know that profile you did on me um nobody showed up zero people showed up and that was a full page. and this is back when newspapers were read a lot more yeah it, he, he had a full okay. page nobody showed up to the reading and I was, and, and I, I told him, I was like, it's so intriguing because if you didn't have that reading, you wouldn't have gotten the full page. 
So even though nobody showed up, it had to tie in with an event. And that's, and it's just, it's, it's so strange that people don't understand that they probably, oh, there must have been at least a hundred people. It's like, yeah. you know what? You can have a full page in the local, in the lo- in the biggest local newspaper in the San Francisco Bay Area and the aughts, you know, at the 2005 or whatever that was, and still nobody can show up. And you've written for The Simpsons and your books become a movie. And it's just. Like, so, what do you see? That to me is really interesting because I have always assumed if I could just raise my profile a little like i mean you know a long time ago they said and i don't think it's changed much they said in canada there were five fiction authors who made a living strictly by writing fiction at the time it, i know who they were at the time it was alice Monroe, margaret atwood timothy finley michael and and there was one other i forget who the other one was even carol shields who won the pulitzer years ago even she taught. She taught it. Right. Right. But yeah. these are the five that all they did was write fiction and they made a living that way. Everybody else had to do something else. Right. Yeah. Teach, whatever. So I used to think, you know, if I if I won the, a really good award, the governor generals or something or, you know, some some big deal, then, you know, the place would be packed when I walked into it. To, you know, you have this image. It's sort of like, um, I mean, writers talk about how they feel. Um, who's the one who wrote Bird by Bird and Lamont? Yeah, Lamont, yeah. And Lamont. She just writes great stuff, right? About writing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's oh. gotten me through many of dark times. Oh, she, me too. <laughs> I yeah. mean, you just say, oh, yes, and you're right, you're right. I remember her talking about how she felt with her first published book. I mean, she had it in her hand, and she went, she was, I guess, walking along the street holding her book and just assuming that she would be, that the waves would part, right? That people would be flinging themselves on her, and that, you know, like the world would change. And of course, it didn't. Yeah. And it doesn't. And I had thought that. I had always wanted to write. My first novel didn't come out until I was in my mid-40s. And I thought, there, I've done, it won an award. It won the Alberta Writers Guild Award for Best Fiction that year, which I thought was a big deal at the time. And absolutely nothing happened at all, except that I then sat down to try to write another book, right? Yeah. It's so crazy. I I've, I had this epiphany some years ago where, you know, because I've had some good things happen to me. I had a movie come out based that I got to write that, you know, and it's and we got to do the film premieres and it's, and all of that was like showering just so much like. It was so much work and then just getting kind of the love. And then all of a sudden there's the next day and you're not, there's, there's the next person over there. And so what I realized is that's when I had this just, you know, mind blowing um, epiphany of, Oh, wow. It's not the outcome. It's the process. I have, I, I better stay hard on the process because the outcome, even when it's great, still feels strange and awkward and it goes away like fast <laughs> so just, and then it's and but i yeah just to know yeah. that tomorrow i'm working on that book that may come out in two and a half years you know i i read recently um i read a lot of stuff online from the new york times and and uh i used to have the new yorker come but i i don't have a subscription now 
but I was reading something in the New York Times where they were talking about um, Philip Roth. Uh, apparently he died bitter and twisted because he'd never won the Nobel. I mean, this is a man, how much success did he, this man have in his life? I Dude. know. Yeah. Dude. yeah. Oh my God, right? Yeah. I mean, and he died, you know, he hadn't, hadn't quite made it because he didn't win the Nobel Prize for Literature. So, no, so I mean, was 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 he living a bitter life? Do you think, or well, or it, was it? I don't know because I, I this this was just a throwaway line in that article, yeah. and I don't know that much ab about him. I and you know, it's funny about great writers of the mid twentieth century. I, you know, that was you know, I'm, I'm older than you, and I took English literature in university, so. The American authors were the ones that I studied, right? Mm -hmm. So I kept reading as time went on. I kept reading these sort of, you know, from the 30s right up to the 70s and Joan Didion and, you know, all these, these authors. And increasingly, I don't see their books in the bookstores. I mean, I'm sure they're there. They're, yeah. they're probably in the classic section. Yeah. But when I talk to people, for instance, I belong to a couple of book clubs and I'm assuming that most of the women in the book club read those books already at some point, but who, who read, who's reading them these days? I mean, I, I could pick up, I could easily pick up Scott Fitzgerald and reread them tomorrow or Steinbeck yeah. or any one of them. Right. Yeah. And have, I, mean, I know I would be as engaged as I was the, the first time, but even you get to the heights of whatever it is that they reached and they reached the heights at some point, as you say, people are looking at the next, the next bright thing. Yeah. You just have to, and, and you're right. So it's the process. What, what they, the cliche word is the journey, but that's what it is. Right. It, you it, it, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, I, you know, I was working four hours on my book today and is, and I, I kind of been off it for the last few days. And when I'm off of it, I keep forgetting that I have a mild uh, irritation that kind of just keeps bubbling and bubbling and bubbling. And I don't know what it is. And then I get back on the book and I'm, I, it's like taming a beast, you know, and it just, and I'm just like, but I'm kind of doing technical edits now. And it's like outline. Am I putting this here? It's, it's the end. It's the end times of the book, which is kind of the hardest for me because probably because I don't want to let it go. And at the same time, it's like, get the hell out. It's like a, it's like a 25 year old who's just been living at my house way too long. I'm like, get out and get a job. You know, well, that's where I'm at. With yeah, yeah. Right. And then I'm like, and then they leave and I'm like, um, can you come <laughs> back? I'm lonely. <laughs> so the, but yeah, um, I, know. I know, but there's just, there's just an absolute, you know, it. I feel like, like as humans, we're just meant to fix fix things we want puzzles you know that's why cross right yeah every everything's a puzzle and it's just like well how can i fix that and so books and storytelling is my puzzle and i'm just like that that kind of just it's almost a meditative zen like you know hitting my nirvana if i'm trying if i'm fixing a puzzle puzzle even if i'm totally frustrated with the puzzle yeah. it's still getting closer 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 you know it's, you know and uh, finding finding those links like what I love is when uh, your characters start doing something maybe two thirds of the way through and you realize, oh, that's why they did that originally. Yeah. Ah, now I get it. Okay, because I had thrown that in because it seemed interesting. But, yeah. oh, they wanted to do this. I mean, 
you know, Stephen King always says he, he just invents these characters and lets them do what they're going to do. And I kind of, yeah, that's, you know, I get these ideas and then they go off and do things. And sometimes I don't really know why they're doing it, but it's wonderful when you suddenly see them, you yeah. see them making connections that you didn't really realize were going to happen, which is why I know I can never write a decent mystery novel because don't you, you'd have to know the end, right? You'd have to know how it ends. I don't, yeah, I don't know because uh, I never, I've never really never written mystery. Yeah. But I do. I'm the same way, and I and I and I love that, and I love the Stephen King quote about that. But it's just, yeah, you there. You find out more about your characters, and you're like, oh, I put them in that situation six months ago, just because I thought it was a dumb situation. But all of a sudden, that's a subplot now. Yeah, yeah, I know. I I have because I'm I've been working on a sequel to Rose Adams. So I'm about I don't know. I'm, I'm at seventy five thousand words, so I'm probably about halfway through. But I had taken the, her daughter and, and her boyfriend, Morgan and Ian, and I'd shoved them off uh, just before COVID. They went off to um, uh, Thailand. Well, lo and behold, in Thailand, they get involved with a lady boy, a transgender uh, woman who uh -huh. then is in some trouble with the loan sharks there, which uh -huh. I didn't know that was going to happen, but I knew that they needed to be in Thailand, mostly because I needed to get them out of the way because like Rose is going to do other things in this particular book, yeah. right? So suddenly it's coming, oh, that's why they're in Thailand. Okay. And of course they can't leave because everything's locked down. Like this is, it's called Rose in Lockdown. So wow. it, it's starting in March of 2020. Yeah. And, and up to, I'm up to the end of April now. It's taken me a very long time <laughs> to get through. Is this the first time you've written a sequel to one of your books and yes. kept your characters? Yeah. It's the first time. I think I just didn't want to let Rose go. Right? Now, isn't that interesting? Eh? Yeah, I don't yeah. Know what that is. There's something about her. I wanted to hang on to her. I wasn't quite done with her. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'm going to keep writing about her. I've got nothing else to do. So, isn't that's that's the sweet spot of all of this? Yeah. <laughs> it's it, where it's like it's just kind of like we fall in love. My characters. You know, if you think about it, when you're spending four hours a day on your characters, that's more of an intimate relationship than most relationships. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. yeah. You know you know what it reminds me of? Uh, you know, remember Salinger? He had Franny and Zoe. Remember he mm. had, uh, what was, what was their, the Glass family? Their last okay. name was Glass. Uh -huh. And he kept writing about them. And uh -huh. I remember one time reading that J.D. Salinger, he, he was in love with he was in love with that family, yeah. even though they were kind of weird and um, not all that lovable and they were strange, but he loved them and huh. he just kept writing about them. And I never really, you know, I never really felt like that before about, about a, a character, but I will say that maybe part of it is, you know, maybe that I've taken so much of Rose from my own life. So maybe that's why. And I, I just want to, I want her to be exploring some things. Like right now she's exploring with Charles, her husband. Um, they're talking about uh, medically assisted death. Yeah. Down the road. And, you know, that's something that intrigues me and keeps changing here in Canada. They At one point they they said, yeah, if you have mental problems, you can do it. And now they say, no, you can't. And that kind of thing, right? So right. there's just stuff to explore. And, and she's, for me, 
she's a good avatar to use to to explore that. Whether anybody else will be interested, I have no idea, but I'm I'm having fun. So <laughs> And that's and that's the beauty is we can explore all sides of it through a character. Yeah. Yeah. Margie, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank thank you so much, Tony. This was so fun. So fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Des yeux qui font baisser les miens, un rire qui se perd sur sa bouche. Voilà le portrait sans retouche de l'homme auquel j'appartiens. Quand il me prend dans ses bras, qu'il me parle tout bas, je vois la vie en rose. Il me dit des mots d'amour, des mots de tous les jours, et ça me fait quelque chose. Il est entré dans mon part de bonheur dont je connais la cause c'est lui pour moi moi pour lui dans la vie il me l'a dit la jurette pour la vie et dès que je l'aperçois alors je sens dans moi L'amour a plus finir, un grand bonheur qui prend sa place, des ennuis, des chagrins s'effacent, heureux, heureux, en mourir. Quand il me prend dans ses bras, il me parle tout bas, je vois la vie en rose. Listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.